0: Welcome to the Boneyard with Steve Robertson as always I am your good friend and host Steve Robertson here on the hump day edition of the yard hope you're good today it's a nice day on Starkville I don't know where how it is where you are but it's a nice day here in Starkville it's cool not cold sunny not windy it's a beautiful day beautiful beautiful day and we've you know we've had some uh I guess I guess it got down below freezing last couple nights but not bad you know, I just woke up with a little ice on the windshield. Nothing we can't deal with. But it's been okay. I enjoy the winter. I don't enjoy, like, the blustery, windy, rainy, icy, sludgy winter. But, like, the colder temperatures are cool with me. I mean, I grew up down here in South Mississippi. But the reality of it is is that, uh, you know, I like having seasons. You know, we only get about 15 minutes of fall. So, we kind of have to, like, pick and choose uh you know when we can wear shorts and that sort of stuff and and one of the things too i get kind of tickled about people say you know only in mississippi do these things happen well no no that's not true not true at all happens everywhere we act like it's that we're just so unique you know we are a good brand of folks but the, the reality of it is is there's not a lot of winter in the south but i do it seems like when i was a kid it seemed like we used to have more seasons you know what i mean like you'd have the spring and You'd have the, that dead-gum Mississippi heat in the summer, and we'd have, uh, have some fall. And the next thing you know, we'd have a little winter. Never, never had much snow, but at least we had some winter. We could wear our winter coats, but hadn't been the same. Now we go from winter to 100 degrees. But I digress. A lot to talk about today. A lot happened in the last uh, 48 hours or so, for sure, since we've been together. You know, with the Georgia wins a national championship – Congratulations to the Georgia Bulldogs, their fans. I touched on this on Twitter, and I was incorrect. I, I, for some reason, I didn't do my research because it's, tw- it's a tweet. You know, it's not a manuscript. It's not an article. It's a tweet. But I mentioned, you know, how Georgia won an AFL championship in 1980, and Louis Grisard, who was an incredible humorist, used to write a syndicated column for Gannett, and that was the first thing that I read. We used to get the Hattiesburg American when I was a kid. And I, and I used to read the newspaper every single day. I don't anymore because the quality of journalism is not what it once was. But the reality of it is when I was a kid, I'd go grab that Hattiesburg American and I would comb through it looking for a Louis Grizzard column. And sometimes they were about sports. Other times they weren't. Sometimes he would just write about whatever's going on. I eventually ended up buying a couple of his books when I was a kid. Uh, I guess the chili dogs only howl at night and uh, be careful bending over in the garden grandma the potatoes have eyes you know there are a lot of books like that that uh, Louis Grisard really kind of captured what it was to be a southerner in many respects and uh, sadly we lost him far too soon but He was a major influence on me. You know, not just as a writer, but as a young person, just reading that, I felt like this is a guy that got it. And I had a discussion with Mike Neiman about this earlier. You know, when I was a kid, and I know it's like this probably for many of you in my age bracket and older, you know, when I was a kid, we kind of rooted for everybody and everything from the South, except Ole Miss. We didn't root for them. There's some people today that, oh, well, you know, Steve, but no, no, no. But we rooted for everybody from the South. And I remember in 1980, being just a kid, watching the Sugar Bowl with my stepdad and seeing Georgia win. And in some ways, it felt like we won. You know, we were Bulldogs. They're Bulldogs. We're from the South. They're from the South. So we're both in the SEC. And so we were happy that Georgia won. And Louis Gouzard wrote this great book called Glory, Glory. And it was actually their second national championship. 80 wasn't their first. And so I mentioned on Twitter, you know, whoever writes the book of the 2022 NAFL championship, I guess technically the 2021 NAFL championship, they got a pretty high mark to reach chasing Louis Grisard. And so if you are a young person or perhaps even a middle-aged person or a silver-haired dog, and maybe you haven't read Louis Grisard, let me encourage you, get on Amazon, get there and find some of those books. You'll be glad you did. An incredible writer. And I thought about him a lot this week. You know, I was like, you know what, you know, in many respects, I think about, you know, is coming out, and we're about two weeks away, thank goodness, from the book being shipped from the printer to the publisher. And I thought about him a lot when I was writing Dogpile. About, you know, it's a guy who was a lifelong Georgia fan, had an opportunity to write about a NFL championship in football, and, and how much fun that had to be. And here, here we are 41 years later, and I'm still talking about that book, you know. Now, granted, I'm nowhere near on the level of Louis Grisard by any stretch, but I thought about him a lot when I was writing Dogpile. And I thought about, you know, this is kind of my moment you know, to kind of chronicle a huge moment in our fan base's history, and I take that responsibility very seriously, very seriously. It's an honor and a privilege. It really is. And I've shared with many people, I feel like is the book that I was born to write. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's been on my mind a lot lately. You know and Lewis himself, and uh, l- look up and read about him maybe today when you have some spare time, if you're unfamiliar with Lewis Grisard he was fabulous, such a gifted writer, and he made a lot of serious stuff feel really southern, and he wrote it in a language you know kind of filled with colloquialism that made us all understand it. He was great, and yeah you know, we talked about talking to Nemoth earlier, but you know. The north and the south and you know nowadays people don't talk about that as much you know it's one of those things where a lot of people still kind of look down on the south which i think is ludicrous because i'm a southerner but you don't hear people talk about the yankees anymore unless they're talking about the new york yankees when i was a kid man it was like ah, oh, those dead gum yankees you know it's always the yankees the yankees the yankees the yankees you know and it's why why do you think that you know, pate's picante sauce was so big right that's made from people out in San Antonio, instead of someplace up near New York City. You know, that, they were just kind of playing up on that, that belief at the time. And so it's just a different day and time. But it's always good when a team from the South wins. It is, and, and maybe that's, um, maybe that's a little short-sighted. Maybe it's just being a Southerner, but I'm really happy for Georgia. And you know what? If Alabama would have won, I, I probably wouldn't have been as happy for them because it's just kind of more of the same. And that's in no way any disrespect to Nick Saban, who is the greatest college football coach of all time. There is no question about that. And I thought you know his comments and uh, the way he handled Bryce Young and those guys in postgame, again, it's just kind of indicative of the quality of coach that he is. But it's good for the game of college football to have some variety and to have some parity and to have Georgia win and i'm just so happy for their fans i've got some uh, some friends some colleagues that cover the university of georgia and and i can tell you you know it, even though like some of the guys that cover our beat you know that not everybody that covers mississippi state's a mississippi state fan and that's okay they don't have to be it's not their job to be out there promoting the university but i can tell you everybody that i know that was part of that run we all had to cover the uh you know, the women's final four games and watching the Bulldogs beat UConn and play for an AFL championship in back-to-back years. It's a lot of fun as a sports writer to be able to cover a team that is making national news. And so for those guys that have covered Georgia all year long, I mean, you know, they, they covered, again, the Clemson game, which was a huge win earlier in the year. That's the one game I thought Georgia may lose this year was Clemson. But nobody paid a lot of attention to their work throughout the year. But then all of a sudden, this team begins to kind of take flight. You clinch the East, you're going to play in the SEC Championship game, and then you lose, and then people are yep, 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 same old Georgia. You make the playoff, you get back to the NFL Championship game, and then you get to record one of the greatest moments in the university's history. That is a really, really cool thing. We get to do a lot of cool things in sports. I have a lot of people many of you that come up and and to be honest with you make me out to be a bigger deal than I deserve I said man I'm just a regular guy with a cool job got a full head of hair uh, I take a lot of pride in that since so many of my friends can't but uh, the reality of it is is when you the job becomes <clears throat> really kind of work a day at times and even though we see a lot of cool stuff we get to go to a lot of cool places it's always so special when you know you're writing something that people will cherish forever. But as long as they live, all those Georgia fans are going to remember, you know what, hey, I was there or I was with my family or my kids, kind of like we all were with the College World Series. We knew, we had confidence that we were going to win that game. And we knew something special was happening. And I know that I speak on behalf of everybody involved with Mississippi State writing. I can tell you, we all took special attention to writing those stories because we knew how important the moment was. And I'll share with you too before we move on. You know, Dave Murray is a guy that uh, I have admired and respected for many years. I'm very honored to call David a friend and a colleague. You know, he's he's been with me now 20 years or so. And um, I remember the very first time that I saw the dogs by tabloid, and I was like, who is this David Murray guy? How did he get this job? I mean, you can only cover Mississippi State and make a living doing that. Are you kidding me? I got to find out if this guy needs an assistant, you know. But David's a guy that's covered a lot, of, uh, a lot of losses over the years, man. I mean, he, he's been a lot of places. There was a time there that David had uh, – David did not miss a Mississippi State football game, I guess, from 1992 until 2000 – excuse me, until 2020. He had an incredible streak that will probably you – know, I guess maybe if I live long enough, I'll surpass that streak. But the reality of it is nobody had ever covered more Mississippi State football games consecutively than David Murray. And then he got married and the streak came to an end and there's all the COVID protocols. And I worried about that last year too, about David streak. He was okay with it. But, you know, I thought about that when we went to College World Series. I was like, you know, there's been so many times that David covered college baseball and David was a former SID for baseball. um, SID for women's hoops. And of course, uh, you know, work with Dogs Bite. And and sometimes the job titles don't matter. But, uh, you know, matter of fact, it was Dave Murray it was on the phone. It made a phone call back when we had landlines back then. When we won the SEC championship, you know, back in 1989, Dave Murray called to get the score, and he had the honor of going down to the dugout and telling Ron Polk and the guys that we had just clinched the SEC championship. And so we were in Omaha. Dave was fanatic man. I'd never seen David like this. Even, even, in a, even when we got ready to play Texas, you know, of course, Dave was there when we covered the Gene Morgan. Uh, or maybe he did. Maybe he didn't cover it then. I think he had to run the shot back home in Starkville. I think. I don't think Dave went to the 85 College World Series. But we talked a little bit about, you know, the uniforms. And maybe are we tempt and fade a little bit, you know, kind of recreating the Gene Morgan situation. And we did. And I told Dave, I said, Dave, we're going to win the game. We're going to win the game. We're going to play for an national championship. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. And that's that old school Mississippi State fandom inside Dave Murray, right? It's like we're just waiting, even though we know we probably deserve it, we're just waiting for something negative to happen because we feel like the world is against us. So we beat Texas, and then it's like, well, you know, it's Vanderbilt. I said, Dave, I I actually feel okay about it because I had gone to Nashville and covered that best two out of three series against Vanderbilt, and I didn't think they were better than us. We should have taken two out of three in Nashville. And we walk away, you know, I mean, you remember everybody was like, we just got to get one in Nashville. We got to avoid getting swept. Well, we got one in Nashville, but nobody was satisfied with that in hindsight because we all knew that we could play with those guys. You lose to Kumar, you beat Leiter, and then you lose on Sunday in a game that we should have absolutely knocked them out of the game in the early going of the, of the, of the ball game that I don't think we scored the last, what, seven, eight innings of the game. Usually when that happens, you're not going to win. You get shut out seven, eight innings in a ballgame. You traditionally don't win. But I felt good about Vanderbilt. I remember telling David, I said, David, where's the rider in you? Of course it has to be Vanderbilt. Just like for Georgia, it had to be Alabama. It had to be that familiar foal, right? We get rocked that first game, obviously. You know, poor Christian McLeod just wasn't right out there and and, uh, had been up and down. And uh, they got to him. He wasn't right the whole time he was in Omaha. And a lot of people were already thinking, you know what, hey, number two's still really good. It's still really good if we don't win. Because they had Lighter going in game two. We weren't thinking, you know what, or excuse me, they had Kumar. No, what did they do? They, they, anyway, they had Lighter in game one. They beat us They through threw the freshman in game two. We all felt confident we'd get game two and force a game three. I think everybody felt that way. And then we had to deal with Rocker, who had had really been money against Mississippi State, and a tremendous pitcher, one of the better pitchers in recent memory in college baseball. And so, once we knocked Rocker out of the game, I think we all knew this was it. We had been hoping for this moment, this is it. And they were, even when we we're up 8 9 nothing, there were some, uh, some of our fans were still kind of like just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And so the game is over and we've won. And Dave will probably be a little embarrassed, i tell you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway because we're family. But I've written all my stories and, uh, you know, I've taken all the handshakes from all the guys in the national media, Aaron Fitt and uh, Kendall Rogers and Teddy Cahill, Joe Healy, so many great people involved with covering college baseball. I'd be like, hey, Steve, this is a big moment for you guys, congratulations, you know. And it does feel really nice, it really does. And um, so I go to tell David goodbye and, and uh, I could just tell David was ready for me to leave. He goes, I'm going to take my time and write my story. I said, Dave, take all the time you need. And so I get ready to walk away and I turn and I look back and there's Dave Murray with his face in his hands, with tears streaming down his face. And I thought to myself, you know what, I'm so glad that David lived long enough to write this story, to write his maroon epic. And it was an incredible story. And I hope in the years to come, many of you will call it back up and read it and it'll mean something to you. But I I share that just to share that uh, there's just so much in life that in time becomes routine and almost mundane be a part of something and cover something that is truly historic and truly memorable it is one of the greatest honors in all of life for a sports writer let's thank our good friends at bulldog burger company Uh, they're they're historic too because nobody's done a better job in this neck of the woods dishing up quality hamburgers right we you know it (laughs) It's true Matter of fact, I might go get Bulldog Burger Company tonight, if not tomorrow. Sometimes I just start jonesing for it. You know what I'm saying? You just kind of get a taste for something and you can't shake it. There are just some times in my life when I think, you know what, what I want to eat, hey, you know what, I'm going to get in there and get a Pimentology add bacon one day this week, and then I can't really feel satisfied until I do. There are a lot of you that I say, hey, Steve, every time we come to Stargirl, we go to Bulldog Burger Company. And you should, it's a great place to eat. Great food, great portions at a great price, great service, great atmosphere, great locations. Three of them to take care of you now. University Drive here in Star Vegas, Gloucester Street there in Tupelo, and the brand new one, Lake Harbor Drive there in the Ridge and Flowood area. I always tell you guys, get the spring rolls. I'm not just saying that because I don't get paid any commission on them. I'm trying to make you guys have a better life. Eat the spring rolls because they'll make you and everybody around you better looking, not to mention their delicacy, man. They're outstanding. I don't know what they season them with. It's perfect. Couldn't be any better. You get that great restaurant quality hamburger and wash it all down with uh, you know, that chocolate shake to go. or Perhaps get yourself some bread pudding. There's always some great things to choose from there. So if you're looking for a cheat day, a regular day, or even a healthy day, because you can go in there and get your burger without a bun, you can get it on a gluten-free bun. You can get that BLT salad, grilled or fried. So many great options to choose from. Go by and check them out today. You'll be glad you did. And be sure to tell them I sent you. That's Bulldog Burger Company, the place where people go to meet. M-E-A-T. All right, in honor of uh, Hank Fleck, let's go to the hump for hoops, right? Let's, uh, let's talk some hoops right now. First things first, Mississippi State women's basketball's game against Kentucky has been postponed. Uh, Doug Novak informed the media on Tuesday. They only had about a half dozen players available for practice. You know, we we're hoping to get some, some folks back. You know, there's another round of testing. Obviously, you know, there's, they test multiple times each week. We're hoping to get some players back. And while no one has made an official announcement in that respect, clearly that's not the case. Clearly, we, we weren't able to do it. And here's the thing, too. You know, the fact this game's getting postponed also says a lot about, um, you know, all about. Uh, you know, the reality of it is, is that even though we've been short-handed, we've gutted it out. And so, what are we going to do? When we're, you know, when we're, you know back to full strength the fact that this game gets postponed should tell you kind of how difficult the situation has been for doug novak and the staff you're right there basically at the minimum at the threshold and when you could or could not or should or should not postpone a game and they've elected to play and so the fact that we're not playing against kentucky which is a road trip. Uh, it just kind of says a lot about how precarious that situation is. So the next time ladies will be in action will be in Oxford uh, against Ole Miss. Hopefully we're, we're healthy and able to play. That's one thing I think about, too, is like, you know, you never know what people are dealing with. You know, we, we've talked at times before about how this virus has impacted people differently, like my friend Dave Johnson. He and I are in Nashville together at the same meeting, sitting next to each other at the same table. And poor Dave – has to fight for his life and ends up on a vent and I never got a fever you know and that's not to say that in any way that I'm in better shape or you know uh, a better person than Dave Johnson because I'm clearly not but the reality of it is is we, there's just so ra- there's so much randomness to all of this you know everybody in my family has had COVID with the exception of one of my kids um, one of them got no symptoms at all and a couple of them were in bed for a few days you know and so I'm not going to sit here and you know offer expert opinions on what or what is what is and what is not happening but you just kind of wonder like of these people that test positive for covid and a lot of people are like oh well they shouldn't be testing um all these people well here's who gets tested unvaccinated people and symptomatic people that's who gets tested you know we don't, we're not out there just testing you know healthy vaccinated people and then all of a sudden there's a breakthrough case that's asymptomatic oh we can't play a basketball game that's not what's happening You know, the protocol is unvaccinated and symptomatic players and coaches. And so when these teams are short, it's not like you've got completely healthy people that are just being popped on a test. There's a real issue here. And so the thing that I wonder about, because of the fact that I've had some people close to me that have had some pretty serious bouts with this virus, let's say you're a symptomatic positive tester, and you quarantine and you finally come out. I mean, you know, how, how, how much shape are you going to be in to go play a basketball game? It's not like they're just kind of sitting around watching Netflix with no issues. You know, let's say for an example, somebody actually, you know, has, you know, some lung function issues and maybe they're temporarily, but, you know, it's not like they can just get out of bed and all of a sudden they're 100%. So, you know, this, there could be some lingering after effects of this is kind of what I'm suggesting. It's like if we get into the old Miss game, you may have some players that, uh, while may be cleared to play, may not be even close to 100%. You know, young people traditionally, you know, rebound pretty quickly. They do. The young people, it's kind of the, the gift of being young, right, is usually, you know, once you get over an illness, you kind of get up and moving in a little bit better shape than, than some of us older folks but you just never know. You never know how this is going to impact them because there is a lot of randomness to this. It really is. And so I just shared that because it's important to know. I know we've already had the game with Florida postponed. That was actually a rescheduled. Let me give you a date on that if you're, if you're keeping up with that. Um, the women will play Florida Thursday, February 10th at 530. That was a home game. It was, a re- it was supposed to be our SEC opener, and that got postponed. So that's going to be February 10th. And, of course, there could be some more you know, change in the schedule. You know, we just never know. I know we're all tired of dealing with this. I'm tired of dealing with it. You know, but the reality of it is, is, you know, I'm tired of people getting sick. You know, tired of people being hospitalized and, and dying. And, of course, it's not the same numbers as it was a, a year ago. We've made some advancements. But the reality of it is, is we're still dealing with it. Now, that brings me to the next point. I have read with great interest a lot of people. I even went on the Facebook page, the Mississippi State Facebook page, and saw a lot of comments about the, uh, you know, the recent news that you now have to wear a mask inside Humphrey Coliseum. And then, of course, we start with the character assassinations. You know, all of a sudden, you know, Dr. Keenum's an idiot, and, you know, John Cohen's too woke. And, you know, uh, you know again, these are come from people who don't know these individuals. But, and then yesterday, Ole Miss made the same announcement. I didn't see a lot of reaction from our fans about that, but this is this is not a situation where there's somebody that's trying to, um, you know, I guess in many ways politicize the issue like some people have done. And I'm I'm always really delicate when I tiptoe around that kind of stuff because I I want I want you guys to enjoy the show you know free from all of that nonsense. But this is not all of a sudden somebody woke up and said, "Hey, let's see if we can inconvenience these folks." This is all coming from a much higher level. And I think it's important to kind of understand that. But as soon as anything happens, we immediately want to assign motive and assign blame and think we know who and where these decisions are coming from. It's not always the case. I think it may have been better, it you know, probably for on Mississippi State's behalf, if Mississippi State and Ole Miss both release that information the same day. State does it, it kind of softens the blow what Ole Miss does it, right? Except well state had to do it too. You know, and so you know, there are guidelines that are established by the Mississippi Department of Health. And when reading the Facebook page, it is incredible. I saw some people blaming Bracky Brett. What? I mean, it's like, do we not know his function? You know, it's kind of like oh Miss people, if it rains in Oxford, they blame me. You know, it's like, we're going to blame Bracky Brett for this? Bracky has nothing to do with this. Zero. <laughs> you think Bracky Brett makes those kind of decisions? Unbelievable, man. It's like you see that stuff out there on social media, and it's like sometimes I think to myself when bad news breaks, I say, you know, our, our folks are probably gonna handle this pretty well. But all I gotta do is get on Facebook, and I see some people out there, and it's like I don't know if it's like the message board culture or what, or social media commentary. It's like we just kind of get a name and run with it, and uh, you know, we, we kind of pour all of our grief and frustration on these individuals, you know, it's like it's like we think that there are people that work at Mississippi State that want an adversarial relationship with the fans, and I can just tell you that's not true. It's absolutely not true. You know, and so, again, I say these things. Some, sometimes, sometimes we don't have to have a blame Mississippi State first mentality. I think that's one of the things that kind of holds us back at times is we don't truly believe that the people that are employed by the university – are working hard to advance the university now i'm not going to sit here and tell you that you know we always come up aces but i can tell you there's nobody at mississippi state that wants to hold mississippi state back that's factual absolutely factual and there are some people here that come in here and work hard and uh and move on to other jobs and we appreciate their contributions to mississippi state i mean not everybody's a lifer I get it. You get it. We understand it. You know, we think Mississippi State's the greatest thing in the world, but it's not for everybody, and that's okay. You got to think about Jared Venko. You know, now he's the athletic director at Georgia Southern. Man, when that guy was here, that guy was all about Mississippi State, even up until the very end. That guy worked incredibly hard to give Mississippi State the funding and the most competitive environment they could possibly have guy was a magician, man, and the guy cared about Mississippi State. I can't tell you how many times Jared Banco would call me and say, hey, what's going on with this? What's going on with that? He cared. And it wasn't just like he was calling me to get information for somebody else. He was genuinely curious. He's like, hey, he'd call me about baseball sometimes. He goes, hey, what do you think about this? I know you went and saw this team play or that team play. He was a fan. He wanted to know what was going on with Mississippi State. You know, when I see Leah Beasley, you know, around town or on campus or whatever, she always speaks to me, and just about always she has a question. You know, it's like, hey, what are you hearing about this? People care. And so I I just say that because I think sometimes we develop this, there's this noise on social media at times where we forget these individuals have a job to do. And there's not some evil genius. You know, you're not going to one day walk into you know, in Lee Hall or something, and Keenum's going to spend around, and he's, you know, wearing a Dr. Evil outfit. I mean, that's just, you know, there's just so much so, and it's like we think there's just some plot out there to inconvenience our fans. It's just not true. These people are worthy of your support. Does that mean we're going to agree with every decision they make? Absolutely not. You know, there are a lot of people at Mississippi State that I have a tremendous amount of respect and friendship and admiration for, and they make some decisions. Sometimes I just scratch my ass. I, I don't understand this. I don't. And you know what? Sometimes it's not my position. It's not my place to even question that. But I'm like, like you guys, I'm emotionally invested in Mississippi State's success. I want Mississippi State to do well. But nobody calls me and says, hey, Steve, what do you think about this? You know, they don't ever call me. I'm, I'm not in those meetings. Nobody, There's not a conference call where they, they they patch Steve Robertson in to offer his insight on what we should or shouldn't do about certain things. You know, but I trust the people that are involved. And it's like, it's interesting. If, uh, if we go get a, a Diet Coke from the concession stand and it's got too much ice in it, you know, it's like all of a sudden we've got to get on Facebook and complain, you know, Dr. Keenum, you know, I don't understand Dr. Keenum. Why can't he control the ice output at the concession stands? You know, maybe other people like more ice than you. you know, maybe Dr. Keenum is completely oblivious to how much ice was in your drink. So maybe you shouldn't send them that email. I don't think you should. I think we should just kind of move on with life. And be glad we did. Be glad we had the opportunity. That's not to say that some of these things had happened. I mean, you know, long lines of concession stands. Again, you know that that that's an issue that's got to be resolved. You didn't you didn't come to stand in line, right? You came to watch a ball game, you know. And uh, I don't want to get caught up in too much hyperbole, but there's just you know some things, like I, I read some things, I get I just get, kind of get perplexed about it. You know, and, and listen, I'll be honest with you. There's there some, there some recruits over the years that we have taken commitments from and other guys that we've elected to pass on. And I just look at myself and I think, you know, well, maybe I don't know as much about football as I think I do. And then four or five years later when, you know, our guy transfers or is flushed out of the program and the guy we didn't take is in the NFL, I'm like, well, maybe, maybe I do know a little more than than I think. You know, it kind of happens that way. Nobody's a 1,000 – Nobody's on batting 1,000 with that. You know, if anybody was, they'd be, uh, they'd be on a college staff somewhere. Let's talk some men's basketball. The men will be in action taking on Georgia. Looks like that game's going to go off as scheduled. That'll be tonight. It's an SEC network broadcast, a 6 uh, p.m. tip startable time, 7 p.m. Eastern uh, over there in Athens. Let's take a quick look at the Georgia Bulldogs. They have not had a great year. And it's interesting, too, you know, you had, uh, you've had some good recruiting classes at Georgia. We kind of touched on that Monday. It's like, how can Georgia ever be bad at anything? You would think with their resources and their recruiting footprint, they should always be competitive. Georgia is 5-10 and 10 on the year and has lost four games in a row. They have not won a game outside of Athens, Georgia. 0-4, oh, two neutral sides, two home games. So let's run through the schedule real quick. They win a couple of exhibitions to open the year. They take down Florida International 58-51. They lose at Cincinnati. No no shame in that. Bearcat's a very solid mid-major program, 73-68. They drill South Carolina State 76-60. They lose by 10 um, at home to Georgia Tech. They play Virginia up in Newark, New Jersey at the Prudential Center in at Legends Classic. They lose both of those games. They lose to Virginia 65-55 and lose to Northwestern 78-62. Our friends from Wofford, they march into Athens and win 68-65. You remember we played those guys a couple years ago. They were outstanding. Absolutely lit us up from three. And then out of the blue, Georgia beats Memphis. And the Penny Hardaway experience has kind of been up and down, too, for the Tigers. But uh, that was probably a game that they were expecting to win. Georgia had lost four in a row, and then they beat Memphis 82-79. They bounced back to beat uh, Jacksonville, the Dolphins, 69-58. Then they lose at home to George Mason, 80-67. Beat Western Carolina, 85-79. Lose by two at home to East Tennessee State. 86-84 86-84 lose to Gardner Webb seventy-seven, sixty in Athens I bet that was a fun night at Stegman Coliseum then you lose by two to A&M at home and then Kentucky draws them 92-77 up in Lexington so we're getting a team that is struggling hey the last time they had a four-game losing streak they upset Memphis And that's the thing about this conference you can't ever take anybody for granted as we found out last year when we lose to a very 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 bad vanderbilt team it's awful i'm still not over it i need to get over it but i'm not so let's take a quick look at um at the georgia team uh georgia averaging 71 points a game they're allowing 74.3 that is not a winning combination you say oh we'll see their five and ten makes perfect sense right uh field goal percentage, they're connecting forty-four and a half percent, allowing forty-five point six percent. Also not a winning combination. Three point percentage, thirty thirty-two percent, allowing thirty-four percent. And so this is a good matchup for Mississippi State. It's not a great 3 point shooting team. They make about seven a game. Uh rebounding, they're they're Pulling down 34.7 boards a game, allowing 34, basically the same. Assists, they're dishing out 14.3, allowing 15.5. Turnovers, they've committed 206, forced 163. A lot of turnovers. Points off turnovers, 12.4 per game, allowing 15.6. I mean, you run these numbers down and you look at this and you say it's just absolutely no surprise that Georgia's struggling. They're not really, they're not good at anything. They've had 79 steals. They've allowed 110. That's a difference of two per game. They've had 43 blocks. They've allowed 53. You look at this and you begin to think, Steve, uh, there's nothing you look at and say, hey, this is a strong suit. This is a game Mississippi State has to win. There, there is no ifs, ands, or buts about it, and I think we certainly will. Uh, kind of looking at this roster here, uh, Cario Akendo, their leading guy right now, averaging 12.9 points a game, pulled down 61 boards, has 12 blocks, and 17 steals, also 32 turnovers to go with just 11 assists. And we'll see how things progress with him. He's a guy that'll get out and shoot the threes too. Second on the team in three-point attempts, converting just 21.8%. That, that, that's part of the problem too, right there, Tom. Is one of your most prolific three-point shooters in connecting at a high enough rate, probably forcing some shots. Braylon Bridges, averaging 12.6 points a game. Doing a pretty good job for them in a lot of respects. Playing about 27 minutes a game. 64% shooter from the floor, which is the best on the team. Of course, he's a post player, you know, so he's not having to uh, to contend with the longer shot, also has pulled down 89 rebounds, which is a team high as well. Doing a pretty good job though staying on foul trouble, even though he's a guy that's playing in the post. I mean, he's got less fouls than many of the many of his guards. He's also got uh, 18 assists, 32 turnovers, five steals, seven blocks. Redshirt senior, six eleven, 240 pounds. Aaron Cook, the third leading scorer on the team, averaging just over, just under 11, 10.7 points per game. Also, a guy that's shooting a lot from three, 17 of 55 from the three point line, just under 31%, 22 steals on the year, 93 assists, which leads a team, 46 turnovers, also leads a team. Guard play has been a moving target for Tom Crane's Bulldogs. Jalen Ingram, he is a guy that uh, hadn't played a lot of games for them, but he's, uh, he started nine. So when usually when he's available, he's starting. He's a guy that's also shooting a little bit from three, six of 23. Shooting a lot, not making many. 26%, averaging 10.7 points per game. You know, free throw shooting as a team, 72.7%. Not great, not awful. You'd like it to be a lot better. But, you know, Jalen Ingram is the guy. Heading 90% from the free throw line. So that's a guy you don't want to foul. Everybody else, it's kind of like, we'll take our chances. You know, uh, Cario Akendo shooting 68%. Berlin Bridges right at 70. Aaron Cook 69%. So, you know, this is, again, this is a team you look at here and you begin to kind of wonder, you know, what can we do to kind of exert ourselves a little bit and i think basically what you do is you, you got to run some half court sets and be able to get get a lead and then force their guards to handle the basketball i just don't think they're going to be in a position that they're going to be able to really get out and run a lot with us i think if you know we we've got to be efficient on offense which is kind of our bread and butter you know we don't get out and run either which is some of us like sometimes you know we've got like a it's, I got a German Shepherd, so like we got a German Shepherd on a leash, you know, and just kind of holding him back. Yeah, we we'll, we eventually will get our walk in, but um, he'd be a lot more efficient sometimes if I just take the leash off of him. And you know, sometimes he's going to probably run off the trail. Going to be some other times too that uh, you know, he might get lost in the woods for a second or two. But the reality of it is, I mean, I think sometimes you got to get out and run. I think if they try to get out and run with us, it's going to be a mistake. We got to get back in perimeter defense for sure. I don't think there's any question. I think they want to play a little bit up-tempo. But the problem with them is, is they, just, they, they don't really have any semblance of offense. And so uh, we'll kind of see how things progress. And looking at their conference numbers, as you can imagine, it's, it's an early snapshot. You know, there's two games played. You know, the numbers actually are worse in conference from an average standpoint for the most part. You know, three-point percentage for Kario Akendo, he is one of seven. And three in SEC play. Noah Bowman, 8 of 15. So he's kind of emerging as more of a scoring thread for them, actually leading them, or second leading scorer in, in uh, SEC play with 16 and a half points. So that's number 20. So be mindful for him. He's probably a guy that um, kind of getting some opportunities because some of the regular starters in the beginning of the year just weren't contributing. But the reality of it is, is this is a game that we should win. This is a game, but it's at, at home against a team that is really, really struggling in every aspect of the game. And I, I mean, I hate to even say it. You know, I mean, it's like, you feel like, oh, well, you know, Steve, our new must wins this early. Guys, we got to win this game. We absolutely have to win this game. You don't get a lot of teams with losing records this early in the conference schedule. And so we got to win this game. I feel pretty confident that we will. But you know, the Ben Howland experience has told me, you, you got to learn to expect the unexpected. But even at home, mask or no mask, this is a game we've got to win. Now, obviously, this is a game you guys are going to want to watch. So be sure to tune in. And, uh, again, I still believe this is a tournament team. And I said that even after we lost to Ole Miss. I understand why people bail-, bail off the bandwagon, you know, after emotional losses like that. But the reality of it is there is so much talent on this team. Sometimes we just got to get out of the way a little bit. But the reality of it is, is I think this team is capable of getting to the tournament I think it's the team's capable of winning a game or two, depending on matchups. I'm not re- – you know, listen, I, I don't know that there's anybody in the media that's been harder on Ben Howland the last couple of years than me. And I'm telling you, I still think we got a shot. I, I mean, I'm not just saying mathematically. I think this team's best basketball is ahead of them. And my hope is, is that we learn some things over the weekend. So you go get a big win this, tonight. You go beat Georgia, put another win uh, on that side of the ledger kind of get your mojo back a little bit and then get ready to go play another big ball game i mean we had discussed on this show if we could find a way to win two of the first three we would feel like we're on schedule now of course we were hoping that one of those would be against old miss but um you know we've won one lost one we had the missouri game postponed and you look at this georgia thing and think okay we can pick up one there and then we get alabama at our place now alabama's a good team they're a good team offensively for sure but the reality of it is, is we said if we, we were 2-1, we'd be on schedule. We got a chance to get there, even though we've had a game kind of removed there. And then we're going to get into a more difficult stretch. And that's the thing about looking at this basketball schedule. It's not like football. You, just, you can't get too far ahead, especially now with all this COVID stuff. You can't get too far ahead of yourself and start thinking, oh, well, yeah, well, that's a W, that's a W. Because you just never know from one game to the next who's going to play and who's not. You just don't know. And, again, go play the game. No matter who you got, you go play the game. And that's what Doug Novak and his crew have done to their credit. It's like, hey, let's go play. And we've won those games. And I think, again, it makes us a better team long-term. But, again, I'm not ready to bail on the men's side, and I hope you're not either. As frustrating as a loss to Ole Miss is in any sport, the reality of it is, is we we have plenty of opportunities to make up for that. And we'll look back at the end. Oh, I can't believe we lost to this bad team because, you know, Ole Miss uh, loses to A&M uh, last night. But the reality of it is is that – Let's just take a deep breath. Let the coaches work. Let the players get healthy. They're continuing to gel. This is a group that's never played together, and they're they're kind of figuring some things out. And so I think games like tonight, you have a chance to kind of settle things down a bit. And that's one thing I give Ben Howland a lot of credit for. And granted, we don't know what goes on in the locker room. You know, we're not back there. But he has this kind of even demeanor. You know what I'm saying? It's like, and this is one thing I'll say about Kermit. And listen, I'm a Kermit Davis fan, even though he's at Ole Miss. I followed Kermit's career, and, uh, you know, I, at some points, I've wanted him to be our basketball coach. But when Kermit gets on somebody, it's, it's, sometimes it's a little over the top. You know what I'm saying? And it's like there's only so many times you can go to that well. You know, I can't jump and scream and everything else too many times. And That's one thing I give Ben Howland some credit. You know, you know, he has some passion but he's not a guy that's going to jump up, down, and rant, and rave, and draw attention and embarrass kids on the sideline. And I do, I do respect that about Ben Howland. I really do, uh, and I think that makes a difference later in ball games. I think that prevents guys from playing tight. That's not to say that we've been perfect in that respect. But my 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 opinion of Ben Howland, as an on the floor coach, as far as like managing the emotions and the ebb and flow of a ball game, is very positive. And hopefully that that doesn't come into play tonight. Hopefully we can get some breathing room here and. And, uh, and get a big W. You know, that's the main thing is let's go put a win in the win column. All right, it's time for today's top 10 list brought to you by CloseWithBlair.com. It's Close, C-L-O-S-E, with Blair, B-L-A-I-R.com. Had a couple people reach out and said, hey, Steve, need that information, how to get a hold of your mortgage guy. Well, you know, here's the deal. Blair is not just the mortgage guy. Blair is not just a friend. Blair is the guy that gets things done. If you are perhaps kind of a non-conforming borrower, maybe you've got a unique situation, Blair might just be your savior when it comes to avoiding foreclosure, perhaps getting a refinance to pay off some debt, perhaps add a second mortgage. This is a guy that, knows what to do 21 years in the industry guys 21 years that's not to say there's not a lot of other people out there doing a good job Blair doing the best job but being a lawyer bondyard listener doesn't matter who you cheer for he'll still get your loan closed and here's the deal too because you listen to the yard and he supports the bondyard, he's going to pay for your appraisal just mention to him by text by phone by email Carrier pigeon, smoke signals, whatever. Let him know you're a yarder. That appraisal's paid for. It's about a $500 value. A lot of fees in closing a mortgage. Anytime you can save a little money, it's a good thing to do. Give Blair a text call today or visit him on the website. Of course, close But his phone number, his personal cell is 601-500-2344. Again, 601-500-2344 listen here's the deal at sometimes in life things get a little bit hectic financially get your equity working for you take advantage of these low interest rates we have right now consolidate some debt lower your overall debt to income ratio live life a little easier no shame in that none at all all right spent a little time on the road yesterday i've had a couple tattoo appointments this week i gotta I got get all that stuff done before baseball starts you know Sometimes it uh, takes a day or two to recover from all that, because usually I don't just sit in a chair and, and, uh, and get somebody's initials on me. You know, I get some pretty elaborate work at times, and uh, I need a day or two where I can just kind of sit and rest. But on the road yesterday, I listened to uh, some hair metal. a surprise, surprise, right? You know how it is, you get an earworm sometimes, you think, I got to listen to this song kind of like when you get a craving for a bulldog burger company right you just think the only thing that's going to satisfy this if i listen to this song so listen to some winger yesterday reminds me too you know winger was one of the biggest bands in the country at one time kip winger former bass player from the alice cooper band goes solo puts together a tremendous group has a lot of radio success you know some have said that uh Maybe I'm perhaps a dreamier version of Kip Winger. Or maybe he's a dreamier version of me. I don't know. But Kip, a good bass player. Pretty good vocalist, too. And I thought, too, you know, there's a new Beavis and Butthead movie coming out. And some of you think, Steve, what is that Beavis and Butthead? We are you talking about? Listen, in the early and mid-'90s, Beavis and Butthead was a cultural phenomenon. And you can find the movie Beavis and Butthead to America out there. You find out that uh, their dad was like a uh, Motley Crue roadie, which is no surprise. But basically, they would sit around and kind of critique videos, and they were cartoon characters, and they were fantastic. Shut up, Beavis. But one of the bands they kind of targeted in a negative way was Winger. And in some respects, it kind of ended Winger's run. It's kind of like how people are about Nickelback. It's like everybody like Nickelback, and all of a sudden people are like, oh, Nickelback sucks. And it's like, what? 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 Do they really? I like them. But I like you, too. I want to be your friend. Yeah, you're right. Nickelback sucks. But Stewart, who was kind of a comic relief in the Beavis and Butthead show, wore a Winger shirt. He had a black shirt. that had Winger written on the front of it. And then they would just be brutal to Stewart and to Winger in their videos. And all of a sudden, it kind of became cool to hate on Winger. Well, here's the deal. Reb Beach is a guitar player for Winger, also in Whitesnake now, is a phenomenal guitar player. Phenomenal guitar player. I liked him so much as a teenager. I, I, I almost considered naming my 1st Melbourne child Reb, but I couldn't due to obvious entanglements but i liked his playing that much and so we're going to do a winger top 10 today in honor of stewart from beavis and butthead a few honorable mentions for you there's a great track off of uh, in the heart of the young that's the second album called loosen up and then one of the songs that i thought should have been a single off the very first album that first album is electric i mean it really is a song called time to surrender and there's a great love song on album number two which is um called under one condition he actually wrote this kip dated rachel hunter for a while of uh si swimsuit fame rachel hunter a beautiful woman and even says in the liner notes that the song is dedicated uh, to rachel h it's under one condition it is a beautiful love song um so be sure and check that out and then rachel hunter left kip winger and married rod stewart it's tough work man being a rock star all right so here's you go here's your top 10 there's a there's a couple of songs you may not be quite as familiar with and so i kind of worked them in because i really like them a lot and the first one has an incredible opening riff we talk about rub beach being a, a great on the guitar i think this is clear evidence of that fact it's hanging on from the self-titled debut album from winger hanging on from winger and you'll see him talking about that opening riff is phenomenal the next thing you know you're off on a roller coaster it is great and winger not a heavy band they just you know they they got the long hair and they play the guitars and they wear the the clothes and everything but they're 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 mtv radio music friendly number nine also from the debut album hungry this was kind of a late single for them and it was one of those that the fans really wanted there were a lot of people that would show up at winger shows and uh ask them to play this song hungry number eight off of uh the heart of the young album i remember listening to this album in the summer of 1990 it was a great great time i was living in canton mississippi with my dad at the time made some good friends in that neck of the woods and everybody had this album i think i was among the first to get it everybody's like oh is it as good as the first one i don't know that it's as good as the first one it's still really good next thing you know everybody had it Easy come, easy go. It's your number eight song. Easy come, easy go. Number seven. This actually made the greatest hits album. I don't recall it getting played much on the radio. This is around the time music was changing, as you guys are well aware. But it's uh, it's basically one of these you know songs. Uh, you know, there's you know, it's a guy you know pursuing a girl, and all of a sudden he's not the same anymore. And the, the title of the track is called "Spell I'm Under." you're the spell i'm under like you begin to do things you wouldn't ordinarily do you know in in pursuit and courtship of this beautiful woman so uh, number six if memory serves me correct this was the debut single for winger our introduction to the band winger is uh madeleine and we used to have dial mtv back then and it was such a big deal i don't think people today fully appreciate that you know we used to dial 1-800 dial mtv And we would call and we would uh, make our votes for the songs we wanted to hear. And then later in the day, they would play the top ten songs. And Madeleine was on that list. Like, I don't know that it went to number one, but it was on there for a while. Like, people were kind of pumped about that. Hey, what's going on with this band? This is a good band. And they were great. Number five, and this is uh, under off the album Pool, which is the third album in the Winger catalog. I think in many respects this is one of the best winger songs it's why it's number five but i think also too i think the uh the harmonica on it kind of adds a different vibe to it i really dig it it's down incognito because i'm i'm all out of charm i'm all out of money you know it's great i love the song i think the writing's very clever and so now we get in the top four, and I think everybody would probably agree these are the best four Winger songs. We may disagree on the order, but I think we would all probably, if, if I pulled all the Boneyard listeners that are familiar with Winger and said, hey, what are the best four Winger songs, this would be the group. Number four, some of you would have this number one, and this is one of their, their biggest hits, but it's headed for a heartbreak. And uh, that solo – that Red Beach adds. That's the thing. One of the things too about a lot of the power ballads that, and I love power ballads. Don't get me wrong. Roy thinks that I'm kind of anti-ballad. I'm not. I don't like to end the top ten list on a ballad. But one of the things about power ballads that was always interesting to me is I, I always thought that the, the guitar was too restrained. But not on this one. Red Beach absolutely wails on the solo. It is. I think it's perfect. It's one of the best fitting solos of a song from the genre during the time frame headed for a heartbreak a phenomenal song number three the debut single off the second album is can't get enough and this is it kind of told us hey there's there's more in the tank here for winger you know it's like how you had that great debut album people have kind of a sophomore slump this kind of let people know now nah, winger's okay you know these guys can write some songs and uh they still got some ideas because you know you get your whole life to write your first album and you got about a year to write your second one and that's why some people say it's a sophomore slump it's just more difficult to write quality music in such a short amount of time but uh, can't get enough was a great introduction into the second album really dig it and uh, i love the guitar on this one but the whole vibe in the song is really really great so now we're down to the top two Roy, when I mentioned to Roy, we're doing Winger today. He mentioned this song, and she goes, "I know this has got to be near the top, and I think it's a no-brainer. It's miles away, and at some point, we've all felt that. You know, just when I needed you most, you were miles away. We've all been through that, and whether those miles be, you know, realistic or metaphoric, you know, the bottom line is we've all felt alone. We've all felt abandoned at some time by somebody that we love." And so I think because of that kind of lover's lament quality of the song, it really resonated with a lot of people. I think it makes perfect sense. You know, that people, a lot of people would see this as kind of the signature song for Winger because I think they can identify with the message. Number one, though, and I don't know if we can play this on the radio anymore, but we're going to talk about it here. It's 17. Great guitar, and of course, it's kind of taboo. Oh, she's only 17, and here's the thing I want to frame this up a little bit too because you know there we have we live in the uh, you know the care and cancel culture now it's like oh how could you do that guys here's the deal I want to make sure you get this probably one of the most important things that I'll say today they were writing these songs for us it's like we go back in time and say oh well you know, hey, you know, this, this guy wrote this song and he was like in his 30s and he's writing about some teenage girl. You know, I, I would hope that those feelings were not genuine. But the reality is, they were writing for us. We were the teenage CD buying public. And so they wrote songs that appealed to us. And that was a th- there was this thing, too. It's like when you turn 18, you're know, a teenager, and I don't know how it was when I was a kid. You know, you were kind of cautious about dating girls that weren't 18. You know, and so this song, in many respects, kind of made sense to us. So we're 18, 19. You know, it's like we well, were two years removed, you know, from, from being a 17-year-old yourself. And so if you dated a girl that was 17, you know, it was like it was a bigger deal. It's kind of my point. Your friends kind of gave you some grief about that. Hey, you know, the girl's 17. Why are you dating a girl in high school? you already been to prom. And so I, I say that to kind of provide some context. That's not to say there's not been some creeps in rock music. There certainly have been. But... I think some people that kind of avoid this song, oh, well, she's only 17, you know, well, yeah, she's underage. She is. But in no way on this show are we promoting inappropriate relationships of any kind. But it is a killer track, and, again, I think it's important to understand they were writing that for us, kind of on behalf of us. And it's just kind of you know, prevalent through music at the time. There's just you know so so much of that. I mean, it's like you go back to Kiss – you know, Christine, 16, you know, I mean, it's like, you go back to that, there were a lot of these songs, and of course, times have changed a lot since then, I mean, my goodness, my grandmother got married at 16, you know, and so things are a little different today than they were back then, but this is a great track, and I think it's important to kind of understand that not everything has to be taken so literally, uh, but the reality of it is, Winger, a band that kind of kind of rode the hair wave, the hair metal wave, and it was kind of that last gasp in many respects where they actually had some success. You know, that last little, you know, late 80s, early 90s, right before the grunge movement hit. And that's the thing, too. You look at that interesting juxtaposition with you've got bands like Winger that are out there, and then all of a sudden Soundgarden comes out around the same time. You know, Soundgarden's Ultra Mega OK was already out. Loud Love is already out there. So you've got Loud Love. From Soundgarden, and you've got Wingers and the Heart of the Young. Big difference. Big difference between those albums. And then, of course, you know, Pull comes out a little bit later. And at that point, we had all kind of moved on. You know, we were all like, hey, this, these guys out here are a little more serious. A lot of these bands from Seattle are singing about things that uh, really kind of matter more to us. So Image wasn't nearly the big deal. You know, Chris Cornell, of course, is probably one of those artists that uh, would have been successful at any point in music you know when you have it you have it you know that's the thing i look at guys like kip winger i mean you know kip's out there playing you know basically dive bars now and you know trying to make a little money and get out and have a little fun and last i heard he was living in montana and you know but there's still a lot of bitterness with kip and i think he blames beavis and butthead for a lot of it there's just a lot of you know blowback about winger because it kind of came cool to hate on winger so so there you go i dig winger i think that they're incredible musicians you know rod morganstein is a uh if I'm not mistaken, Rod Morgenstein, who was a drummer, became a a music instructor at the Berklee School of Music. I mean, so this is not just you know some you know some backwoods you know barroom drummer. This is a guy that's very technically proficient. And so there you go. That's the Winger list. Hope I didn't hurt your feelings by bringing up Winger. Um, we got some. Uh, we're gonna. So this Friday we're gonna do a women's music icon. And then on Monday, we're going to do a contemporary women's artist that uh, just about everything she touches goes to platinum. So we're going to talk about that. Got a, and Elsa is going to help us with that list. That's Roy's daughter, Elsa. So we'll have that for you on Monday. That's your top ten list for today. If you've got ideas for the top ten list, reach out and let me know. We had several requests for Winger over the time. And, like, sometimes I look at those lists, Roy compiles these lists, and so when I'm kind of stumped, I go back and look. And I was thinking, we've done Firehouse. I know we have. I double check we had, and then I see we hadn't done Winger. So we did Winger. So here you go. So we're working through your list. I can't remember who suggested Winger, but we did get multiple suggestions for Winger here in the past year. So now it's done. It's always nice so we can go back and find a, uh, you know, multi-platinum, hair metal band that we can talk about a little bit so so there you are and again i know many of you that um that absolutely loved winger in their heyday next segment of the show brought to you by campus bookmark they're still in their heyday standing man miss kathy brown the lovely talented susie everybody up there will treat you like family because they are family Uh, they're just good people i enjoy doing business with them because they're quality people and, and that's the thing too that's kind of you know prevalent in Starkville Mississippi is you know not that we've got the corner on the market on good people but we got a high percentage of them here uh, we got a lot of good people here this is also not some fly-by-night operation that's going to come in here and you know kind of set up shop make some money and leave this is a Starkville institution you can go find standing man out in Leftfield lounge during baseball season these guys are bulldog bands too they're not just employees wearing a shirt it's their personal stuff. They love Mississippi State just like you do. So do business with Bulldogs whenever you can. Visit them on the World Wide Web at campusbookmart.net. And by being a loyal Boneyard listener, we'll give you a phrase that pays. That is BSR, which stands for beautiful Steve Robertson. And that'll get you free shipping on all orders over 50 bucks. Any order less than $50, absolutely incomplete. Again, that's campusbookmart.net. All right, let's talk a little bit about these transfers. So Kyle Cass. A reserve player here at Mississippi State. You know, we signed Kyle Cass. Uh, we needed an older safety. You know, here, uh, you know, a couple years ago, and uh, we signed Kyle Cass. And um, you know, we're kind of hoping that he would be a guy to provide some competition. At worst case, you know, some depth in the safeties room. Just hadn't really worked out though. And uh, he is elected to go into the uh, NCAA transfer portal. It's not a big surprise. It's also not anything that we we just look at and we rejoice about either. That's the thing is anytime that these guys come in here and make a contribution to Mississippi State, you know, we're always appreciative of that. He is originally, uh, I guess he was born in New Orleans and played at Matty Blount High School and then was at Mississippi Delta Community College. But, uh, you know, signed on, you know, back um, as a three-star prospect, You know, back in uh, 18, 19, you know, he was just one of those guys that, uh, you know, we'd missed on some other guys, and we were just kind of looking forward to adding some depth there. You know, we'd had some injuries. We had some guys that hadn't panned out. So we bring him in. And, uh, you know, Redshirt Jr., guy that just hadn't done a whole lot. You know, it's just the reality of it is his guys want to play. And he hadn't played. You know, that's the thing. It's like, you know, you come in with these dreams and aspirations and comes in as a member of the 2020 class was the guy that they were targeting under Coach Joe Moorhead and then, you know, we're kind of making up for lost time. Leach and those guys get here. They do elect to go ahead and sign him. Of course, the support staff on the recruiting, on the recruiting side of things was still here. And so that was a name. So he's a, technically a Mike Leach signee, but he was really a Joe Moorhead recruit. And he just hadn't, he hadn't made a contribution. And, and, again, not being critical of him, but the reality of it is he just he hadn't played. He played in the Vanderbilt game this year and uh, missed the bowl game. You know, a great young man, but it just didn't work out. It's not always somebody's fault. But, again, he was a little bit of a reach, I guess, because, you know, we were kind of desperate to kind of find an older guy to kind of come in and short things up, and it just never came together for him. So uh, he is uh, looking to move on. I'll I'll share with you, too, though. I think it's important because all the time I I get messages from people, and I just kind of assume that uh, maybe you guys just aren't as up-to-date on uh, social media you know, as perhaps I am. But uh, a lot of people automatically assume that, hey, something's wrong. What's happening? What do we do? Well, here is Kyle Cass's message as he announced that um, he was going to transfer out because he didn't play in 2020, so that was basically a redshirt year. So he has a couple of years of eligibility left. First and foremost, I want to thank God for this opportunity and for allowing me to compete on the collegiate level at an SEC university. I wanna thank the entire coaching staff for this opportunity as well, especially Coach McBath, Coach Washington, and Coach Hughes. Thank you for leading and encouraging me. I have learned many things in my time here that will go with me in the future. To my teammates, you will always be my brothers. There is no one else I would rather go in every day and get better with. Thanks for having my back and pushing me to get better on and off the field. To my family and friends, thanks for standing behind me and supporting me. Stark Vegas will always hold a special place in my heart. With that being said, I will be entering my name in the NCAA transfer portal with two years of eligibility remaining. And so I thought, listen, really a nice message from a young man that uh, it came in and it just didn't work out. You know, it'd be easy to, to be bitter. It'd be easy to just say, hey, listen, I'm entering the transfer portal and be done with it. But instead, he writes this very glowing message and thanking his coaches and his teammates. And I think all that's important. You know, but there are a lot of people that think, oh, well, something's wrong. And then no matter how many times I've said it for the last two months, we're going to have several guys leave. leave. And there's still a couple more that I expect to leave. And I'm not giving you names because sometimes guys change their minds. You know, Aaron Odom recently transferred out. Aaron Odom now headed to Southern Miss. Southern Miss kind of becoming uh, kind of becoming the home for wayward dogs. You know, a lot of Bulldogs have left and gone to Southern Miss. And you know what? Good for Will Hall and those guys for snatching those guys up. But of the guys that have left, you know, Aaron Brule, obviously the biggest contributor. And Aaron Odom was a guy, too, that played some, some, some pretty big snaps for State. But, again, he was down the depth chart a little bit. So Kyle Cass leaves without recording a statistic at Mississippi State. Wish him the best, but he was not a guy that was – and you sign a junior college guy, you sign them as kind of a plug and play. You expect them to come in and contribute. Well, he comes in red shirts and then plays sparingly, you know, this year. And so I'm sure he's like, you know what, I spent two years here. It's time for me to go somewhere else. And, again, it's not everybody's, somebody's fault. Wide receiver Quentin Torber, he went into Portland earlier this week. Also, never really played. He had plenty of opportunities as fall camp, played well in some of the scrimmages we thought we might see him this year. He hadn't played. We hadn't announced his transfer destination yet. But, again, this is another guy kind of down the depth chart that hadn't contributed, Calvin McMillian guy that we really liked out of Houston, Mississippi. Things didn't work out for him, and he's moving on. You know, and so that's all part of the deal, too. Armandus Cooley, another one. Really high on him as a three-tack coming out of Wayne County. Never really came together. He's headed to Southern Miss. Janari Dean is a guy that we all absolutely loved. Gets a torn meniscus as he's basically running too deep at the safety position. He wants the ball in his hands. Wants to play running back. will get the opportunity to get Southern Miss. You know, Rodney Gross was a guy that hadn't played a whole lot. He played a little bit. You know, he's had the Arizona State, you know. And so I say people see numbers and they assume because we're also acutely aware of what happens at Mississippi State and think, oh, why are these guys leaving? Well, you know, a lot of these guys are not going to play. And so it's really unfair to them, you know, for us to expect them to stay just because it makes us feel a little more secure about our positioning as fans. You get a short time in life to play sports. So, again, we thank them for their contributions. Nobody has left here with a bitter taste in their mouth. You know, Aaron Brule is a guy that wanted to be the guy, and I think if he felt like that he would be a starter next year, he would have stayed. But, you know, Aaron Brule didn't get to play quite as much this year with the emergence of Jed Johnson and Buki Watson, of course, had a big year. And, you know, if you're Aaron Brule, it's like, hey, I've got really one more year to get this thing right and get things on tape and get to the NFL – i got to go somewhere else. And it's easy to say, well, I would have stayed and I would have went and won the job. You don't know that. You know, and maybe Aaron looks at the situation too. He's like, you know what, hey, maybe Jet's a better fit for what Arnett wants. I need to go somewhere else. And so Aaron leaves because he's got to go be a dude. And I love that guy, man, I do. He is an incredible young man. I think he'll go far in life whether he plays in the NFL or not. But the rest of these guys – You know, by and large, you're just trying to get on the field. These guys are staring adulthood right in the face. They get a little bit longer to play a kid's game. You know, at this point, if you're a guy like Kyle Cass, I mean, you know, after two years in an SEC program, you've probably learned a lot. You've gotten bigger and stronger. And maybe you see they've kind of recruited over you, and you're like, you know what, I can take the lessons learned here, and maybe I can go somewhere. Maybe I can go to Alcorn State or McNeese or go somewhere else and get on the field and have an opportunity to play. That doesn't mean that they're, that they're disappointed in the Mississippi State experience. They're disappointed they didn't play. But guys know, I mean, listen, if you've ever played sports, you know, as bad as you may want to play, if there's a guy ahead of you on the depth chart, more times than not, you know why. More times they're just better. Or maybe they worked harder. Maybe they're a better fit. And it stinks because you want to play. So you go in a portal. Now, the flip side of this is that the benefit for Mississippi State is as these guys leave, it opens up scholarships, you know, for 2022. Gives us an opportunity to remove a non-contributor and add a potential contributor. This is not a negative. That's a thing that that I think we need to make sure we all fully appreciate. It's not a negative when guys who aren't contributing leave. I know to the casual fan that doesn't keep up with recruiting, the perception is really bad. You're thinking, oh, wait a minute, I don't understand here. Something's got to be wrong. No, nothing's wrong. This is the world in which we lead, li- live in now. So, as guys leave, other guys come in. Yesterday, Mississippi State picked up a pair of commitments. Maybe you saw. Picked up four star wide receiver Jordan Mosley, originally out of McGill Tulane and Mobile. And if you know anything about Southern college football, McGill-Tulin is basically a football factory. They routinely have SEC caliber prospects down there. Jordan rated a four-star composite with a 90 by 247 sports, nearly a 90 across the board in the industry, ranked as the number nine player in the state of Alabama for his class. He signed with Northwestern. Guy had 20-some-odd offers coming out of high school. Let me run down some of these two just so you know. Didn't have one for Mississippi State. He enrolled at Northwestern back in July. But he had offers from Tennessee, Arkansas, Central Michigan, Coastal Carolina, Florida, Atlantic, Indiana, Kentucky, Ole Miss, Oregon, Penn State, South Alabama, South Carolina, Southern Miss, Texas A&M, Troy, Virginia Tech, among others. So people look at it and say, well, Stevie didn't do much this year. Guys, he was a true freshman. He was a true freshman that didn't get there until uh, in July. And so, yeah, I'm not in any way discouraged by the fact that he didn't do much at Northwestern this year. The reality of it is this is a guy that was highly recruited at a high school. He has a ton of potential. And, you know, he's six foot 190, maybe 5'11". But this guy can absolutely fly. He has had some objective third-party measurables that he has routinely run into 4-4s and has occasionally broken the 4-4 barrier. According To some other reports. I didn't personally attend. Um, But former director of scouting, Barton Simmons, had this to say. He is a sub-six-foot wide receiver, which makes me think 5'11", that has the look of a slot but the versatility to play outside, has verified track speed that shows up in straight-line situations, has good kick return value, can run by cornerbacks on the outside, good ball skills, and can win contested balls despite size limitations. Shows quickness in his release. Very good run after the catch, That is used in a variety of ways. Primarily a straight-line athlete. Lateral agility and route running are questions. Future power five starter that has athleticism to project as a late-round NFL draft uh, pick. And so he had him as a day three guy going fourth to seven. Yards after catch, rated as a nine. So awfully interesting. And, again, this is a guy, too, like, you know, At the opening back in 2019, we're talking three years ago, he ran into four fives. And then as a senior, he was a guy that uh, ran into four fours. He also made the Mississippi-Alabama All-Star Game. You know, so this is a guy that was a highly accomplished high school athlete, and you can see why he had so many options uh, coming out of high school. And likes to go to Northwestern. And now he's headed to Mississippi State. Steve Spurrier doing work again rated uh, what, number for the 40th wide receiver in the country for the 2021 class. Okay, I'll take that guy. You know, and so you begin to think about this and say, okay, well, you know, where are things headed? You know, Steve, all I see is these people leaving. Well, this – Jordan Mosley is better than the guys that are leaving, at least on paper. You know, you could argue that uh, – you know, I'm, I'm talking on offense, but, you know, like you basically traded Jordan Mosley for Quentin Torber. Now, would you make that trade? You've had Quentin Torber here for three years, and he hadn't seen the field. Okay, well, there's a former four-star receiver out there from Mobile, Alabama, that's looking to get closer to home and play uh, in the SEC. Wouldn't you make that trade? You make it all day, every day. This is a business. It's not a Boy Scout troop you got to go out there and win football games. And, that's, and the same people that decry the fact that some of these guys are leaving are the same ones that will be all on Mike Leach. I don't understand why we're not winning more. Okay, well, this is what we do. This is, the, this is the business side of college football. It's not like we walked in there and cut Quentin Torber, but I'm sure there was some, some honest conversations with him. Hey, this is where you stand. And let's be honest, if you're Quentin Torber, who also is a great young man, if you're Quentin Torbert and you see Antonio Harbin and Jacoby Moore and those guys come in into that wide receiver room, you're probably thinking, okay, okay, these guys can play a little bit. You see Teddy Knox come in there? It's like, okay, I get it. You see Ra'ra Rah Thomas come in there? You know what I'm saying? So now all of a sudden – State has committed these wide receiver scholarship slides, and if you're Quentin Torber, you're thinking, okay, well, I'm here, so why are they signing so many wide receivers? And then you get on the practice field, and you see the fact that these freaks that have joined the program, you start thinking, you know what, I'm probably not gonna play here. Guys know, they know. They may not always admit it to their friends, but in their hearts, they know. And again, I'm not just sitting here being critical of Quentin Torber, he was a questionable take in the beginning, because Mississippi State was trying to get he and John Emery, Quentin came in here, gave us great effort. It just didn't work out. That's not to say he's a bad football player. He's just not an SEC guy, at least not in this scheme. He may go somewhere else and do exceptionally well. I suspect that he'll end up going, dropping g G5, and uh, get a chance to play, and I hope that happens for him. But again, if you've had a guy that's been in your program for three years, and he's not able to see the field, that guy leaves, and you're replacing him with a former four-star that had uh, 20-some odd offers out of high school. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm making the trade, I am. And that's basically what it boils down to: is your trade one for another. Well, this that's a win for Mississippi State. We also added safety prospect Jackie Matthews, former West Virginia Mountaineer. So Jackie Matthews is actually a guy Mississippi State almost took last year. Oh, you didn't know that? Yeah, that's right. You didn't know? Yeah, out of Pinson, Alabama, Pinson Valley High School, that's the same high school that former Bulldog running back Nick Gibson attended over there, you know, in the greater Birmingham area. Jackie was a guy that uh, kind of a lightly recruited guy to high school, ended up going to Mississippi Gulf Coast Community College. Had a really good career down there. Had over a dozen offers, you know, not a lot of Power 5 stuff. But he was the guy that Mississippi State was on. They just didn't pull the trigger on him. We were on him, didn't offer. He did get offers from West Virginia, Arkansas State, Charlotte, Marshall, Old Dominion, South Alabama, Southern Miss, Troy, UAB, Central Florida, Western Kentucky, and uh, a couple more. But had a lot of SEC interest, no SEC offers, and ends up going to West Virginia. And so you say, well, Steve, why should I be excited about this guy? Well, you should be excited about the fact that we need a guy – they can come in here and play either the dog safety or possibly be the, uh, you know, free safety. You know, th- there's, that's the thing. Mississippi State puts their five best DBs on the field. And anybody that watched Mississippi State play this year, and especially last year, know we need help at safety. We need more athletes at safety. And, and here's the thing, too, and, and I, I'm, 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 this is a hill I'm willing to die on. The safety position should be the easiest position to recruit for. Absolutely should be, right? Because mainly it's about athleticism and tackling ability. You know, look at some of the better safeties, you know, in our history at Mississippi State. And they're guys that were converted from another position because you go out and recruit the athleticism and the skill set, and you teach them how to play the position. You know, not everybody can play corner. You know, we're, in, we're in, in kind of in uh, talks with Greg Brooks from Arkansas. I don't think he can play corner. I think he can play safety. I don't think he can play corner. I don't know that he is quick twitch enough and has change the change of direction to play corner in this league. They ended up moving him to Arkansas, and he ultimately lost the job. I think he's a guy that could play with the ball in front of him. I think that's where he would excel. I mean, you look at John Banks. Not everybody can be a Jonathan Banks. Jonathan Banks is a freak of an athlete. John Banks, you remember – You know, started for us as a true freshman against Middle Tennessee and then had a couple of interceptions and then ultimately moves to corner and wins the Thorpe Award and goes on to play in the National Football League. But why did we recruit John Banks in the first place? A kid from out of East Webster High School, we were, if not his first offer, among his first two to three offers. We get him offered, we get him committed, next thing you know, he becomes kind of face of the program, but what do we do? We go out and target his athleticism. You look at his freakish length, his work ethic, and then we taught him how to play everything else. You know, he's getting by on athleticism on a high school level, but he develops. Look at Nico Whitley, one, one of the toughest players I have ever seen, pound for pound, in the state of Mississippi, and it's not close. This guy had absolutely no fear of contact. He, had, he, didn't, he, had, he hit with bad intentions. He didn't care if you got hurt or he got hurt. Didn't care. Played quarterback at Provine High School. Also played some at safety. Rarely left the field. And again, he comes in here. Again, we recruit the athleticism and the skill set. We teach him to play. And the truth of the matter is, if he hadn't got injured, probably goes to the league. Jonathan Abram. Remember him? Yeah. Playing on Sundays for the Las Vegas Raiders right now. They're in the playoffs. Part of a great rebuild out there. Another athlete that basically played quarterback in high school because he was the best athlete. And so those are the things that I look at. You get John Abram. This is, again, a guy, a phenomenal athlete, very intelligent guy, very big football IQ, understood the nuances of the position pretty early, I mean, people forget, he signed with the University of Georgia out of high school, Georgia, that just won an AFL championship. It wasn't like, you know, Georgia was just out there just throwing scholarships around. They saw something in Jonathan Abram. He ultimately becomes a bulldog. But again, if you look at the safeties, what we have done a great job. And the fact that we're having to go out and get some of these guys, we're having to go out and chase the Jackie Matthews of the world, it's because we have, we have missed some evaluations. We've missed you know, again, and I hate to throw shade at Kyle Cass, but you go sign a guy like Kyle Cass, you know, hoping that he comes in and develops and becomes, you know, a contributor on the two deep. And you sign a junior college guy; it's pretty much an understood arrangement, right? You're expected to come in here and compete and play. It's when you have to redshirt a junior college guy; it's not always a good thing. Now, when Martinez ranking, it kind of worked out, but at DB and safety, I mean, you want you sign those guys to come in. If you're having a redshirt a skill guy. From junior college and he's not injured it's a bit of a problem and so because we misevaluate that situation now we're having to go out now he's in the portal we're having to replace him with somebody else and so those are the thing you look at and i'm going to run you know let's go back and look at these real quick here just because now i'm curious let's look at our commitments here uh just from the last few years you know at, at the safety board i think that's one of those things that i think that kind of gets lost in translation we start wondering, well, how in the world did we get into this situation? You know, how how does this happen? when well, we have been so anemic at safety. You know, last year we had all those injuries, and you're starting to get some guys back. You know, so we signed back for the class of 2018. This was your DB class. Aaron Brule was signed as a safety, but we earmarked him as a linebacker, bulked him up, slid him down. Asias Furge, corner, he's played a little bit, and the, the guy really cares. But, you know, he, he was a marginal take as an SEC guy. Jalen Reed, also a corner, exceptional young man, working on his MBA now, probably be a guy you'd want to offer a job to when he graduates. And then Sean Preston at safety. That's your DB class. And so if you look at this group here, of the three true DBs we've signed, only Sean Preston has really been, you know, really a multi-game starter. You know, Ferg started a few games for us and then lost a job to Emmanuel Forbes. And then there's Sean Preston. And so this is a class where you look at the DB room and you realize we signed three guys, we felt pretty good about them, and then they haven't really seen the field. So we have to make some decisions. Let's go look 2019. Let's run this this defensive back group down. This is a year we signed five defensive backs. We signed Jerry and Jones. Remember him? Transferred, Florida State. We signed Fred Peters. He's exhausted his eligibility. Guy did a great job for us. Colin Duncan is a guy that has played a lot of spots for us and has been a starter for us, but it's been very inconsistent at times. J.P. Purvis, your J.P. had the car accident, and uh, things have just not really gotten on track for him ever since, and I really like his ability. And I begin to wonder sometimes if he hadn't gotten injured what his career could look like. And then there's Martin Emerson. Martin Emerson, the guy that's going to go to the NFL. And so, again, we look at this group. You sign five DBs. Two of them are now gone, Jerry and Fred. Three of them, excuse me, Martin Emerson, too. Colin Duncan is a guy that's started and contributed, but uh, hasn't played perhaps at the level that we'd like. And so we're signing somebody else. And then J.P. Purvis, injured, hadn't played much. So of this group, the only guy you look at of a five-man defensive back class that's going to be available to you next year that has significant SEC snaps under his belt is Colin Duncan. And again, he's a guy that's been inconsistent. Let's take one more look. Let's look at the 2020 class before we move on here. Because, again, we, we just wonder, well, how did, how did this happen? This is how it happened. You miss on some guys. You have some guys get injured. Guys transfer. Next thing you know, you got problems. Well, let's look at this group here. You get Emmanuel Forbes, outstanding player, all-American caliber guy. You get Jannari Dean. Of course, he gets injured and then uh, gets down the depth chart, and he's transferred. DCam comes in, and you know, he's coming on. You know, he actually graded out really well in Liberty Bowl. I mean, we, we know the one play, and that's what happens when you're a corner, is you can play 55 plays correctly, and you get beat on one. That's all that anybody remembers. But You know what? That's life and times in the SEC. d a guy, we, we're still high on him. Then there's Cameron Threat, who's transferred out. And Kyle Cass, who's transferred out. So of this five-man DB class, three of the five have transferred. You kind of get where I'm going with this? Let's, let's take one more look. Let's look back at last year. Just because, again, you know, like we, sometimes we make some decisions and people are like, I don't understand. You know, we had you – know, obviously we had Jalen Green transfer in last year, which was big for us. Let's look at some of these other – you know, the guy who we signed last year. Corey Ellington played some as a true freshman. They're really excited about him. Jay Hampton's a guy that I might actually so switch over and play wide receiver. And William Hardrick is a guy that Darcel McBath tells me he's kind of coming on, lowest rated player in the class. And so this is what happens. This is basically the sum of sketchy recruiting. And I don't mean it's a lack of effort, but sometimes you misevaluate a kid. Or maybe a guy gets injured, or maybe a guy is not a good fit, and they leave. And so we've run down four classes of DBs here, and now you begin to kind of see why this need is so emergent. Yeah, we probably got some guys and go out there and start for us, but how many of those guys in a secondary outside of Emmanuel Forbes is a difference maker? I mean, honestly, ask yourself that. I mean, because what happens is sometimes we fall in love with our own players, and we can't be objective. We can't objectively evaluate them. You know, Fred Peters is a guy that uh, – you know, there were a lot of times Fred would get out of position, but he was athletic enough at times to make up for it. You know, if Fred was a guy who was a little more consistent, who knows what kind of career he could have had. But, you know, he's from my high school. guy was outstanding for us. Could have been better. Could have been. We talk about Colin Duncan a little bit earlier. You know, Dylan Lawrence is a guy that was beginning to kind of come into his own a year ago. Terrace is ACL, misses the year, and this year basically a primarily a special teams guy. But, uh, you know, he's a guy, too, that I still think could be a, a solid depth guy on this team. I don't, I don't think there's any question. He's a phenomenal athlete. He's just a, he got a defensive mentality. He's just still kind of learning the nuances of the position. But, you know, at this point, do you expect him to start? I would say probably no. And so that's why we've got to go out and get Jackie Matthews. That's why we got to go out there and get guys like these. This is why we got to go get Marcus Banks is because we have had – a lack of success in recruiting defensive backs the last few years. And, it, and it's caught up with us. It's like we talk so some, some good about our corners, and then when you look at the safeties and you begin to think, oh, wait a minute, what happened here? You know, just imagine how much better Martin Emerson and Emmanuel Forbes would have been if they'd have had some real dogs behind them at safety. I still think Jalen Green's going to have a big year next year. I well, we do. I think Now that he kind of knows the scheme and he's embraced the position change, I think his natural athleticism will take over next year and he'll be playing quicker and faster. But when you look at these transfers and you begin to think, okay, many of the guys that we were expecting to compete with some of the guys that have been inconsistent are guys that are in the portal because they hadn't contributed. Simple as that. Final segment of the show brought to you by Portico. told you guys before if I was moving to Starkville now, I'd move to Portico. Absolutely love going out there. I've been out there a few times just to kind of check on construction. I'll just kind of pass through and see what kind of progress you're making. Uh, You should too. I'm sure some of the people that live in phase one are like, why is he always out here? No, I'm not out there that often. Uh, But the reality of it is it is a really cool place. Next time you come to Starkville, maybe save yourself a few minutes and just swing by there and go check it out. You turn off of 82 on a 12, you know, coming in from Columbus or Tuscaloosa, wherever you're coming from. And then you take that very first right, which is Pat Station Road. That'll take you across Old West Point Road. Boom, there you are, Portico. And here's the thing. If you want to move now, they're not going to be able to accommodate you. But maybe if you're a few months out, this is the right move for you. You can contact our friend Brooks Bryan. And Brooks will uh, let you have a say in maybe picking out your lot and picking out your house plans. That's a cool thing, too. Phase one completely sold out and very happy to report that. So if you have questions about where to live, Brooks Bryan can answer them for you, whether you need a two-bedroom, two-bath, three-bedroom, three-bath, four-bedroom, four-bath, whether it's your investment property or a second home, retirement home, your ball game, retreat weekend, uh, residence, whatever you'd like it to be, we're not going to ask you that. We just want you to have a great place to live. Brooks Bryan's number 601-416-8075. 601-416-8075. I don't know if, if you know, Brooks Bryan had a big catch for us. that sent us to the College World Series. Be sure and ask him about that. Nobody ever does. And I don't want that moment to ever be forgotten. Ever. So, Brooks, obviously, very committed to Mississippi State and to the greater Starkville area. This is a guy that wants us to be a great place. And uh, is, you know, very emotionally invested in Mississippi State and again I like to do business with Bulldogs you should too again make Portico your next move so in honor of Brooks we're going to talk a little baseball in the final minutes we have together today a little bit of a longer show Um, I didn't plan for it to be that way but I didn't think I was going to belabor the point on transfers as long as I did but it needed to be said so we are basically what five weeks out from college baseball season I can't wait I absolutely cannot wait and this is usually the time of year I'm I'm thinking, okay, I need to kind of take some time to myself and kind of get caught up on a lot of stuff because, you know, when baseball season starts, I'm on the road a lot and I enjoy that. Uh, But the reality of this situation is is that uh, I'm eager. I'm eager to get back out of duty double field, like many of you are. Uh, Excited to see Mississippi State as they defend the national championship for the first time in school history. So a lot of people said, hey, Steve, how do you see the lineup shaking out? We get those questions a lot. I did not attend the fall baseball scrimmages. Gene Swindoll, Mike Nemeth did, covered every single one of them. Now, next year, I'll be doing that. I'll pretty much be riding college baseball just about year-round, in addition to everything else, starting this year. Now, you know I've been on the road the last couple of years, and uh, I wouldn't trade road baseball for just about anything. I absolutely love it. Love going to road baseball games. You should, too. Come out and cheer for the dogs. It's always great. You know, like when I went to Columbia, South Carolina – I had a lot of Von Yard listeners that came up over the course of the weekend to say hello that never get a chance to make it back to Starkville. So it's nice to be able to kind of connect with family. And I know that I can speak on behalf of uh, the rest of the Mississippi State fan base. It means a lot when kind of our outlying dogs, you know, that are kind of out there in the mission field outside of Mississippi, it means a lot that you guys turn out to support the team when we can't. You know, I, I'm there in professional capacity, Somebody I'm not out there cheering along with you guys. But I know – a couple years ago, we went out to Long Beach State. And on the, on the video feed, there's some Bulldog fans sitting behind home plate. And uh, I, I felt a real sense of gratitude that they were there on behalf of the rest of us to cheer on the Diamond Dogs. So when you get a chance to get out on the road and go support the team, please do. So here's how I see the lineup shaking out right now. Brad Cumbus in left field. And uh, Brad will be good to go. And a lot of people are kind of worried, you know, and, and they, they think he got the surgery because he got beamed. Brad kind of had a nagging shoulder injury for a while, so we got that taken care of. That's why he didn't participate, you know, in football this year. He's rehabbing that shoulder. And here's the thing Brad will be gone in, in the summer. Brad will get drafted. You know, it's going to be the bigger draft this year. Brad is a big, strong guy that's learning to hit the breaking ball, uh, one of the better defenders. And uh, a guy, too, that uh, really, you know, I think Brad, if healthy, could have probably gone pro in in either sport. I think it's difficult to do both. I really do. I know a lot of people want to do it, and you don't want to make a decision until you have to. It's just so difficult to play both sports. It really is. I think your body at some point kind of needs some rest. That's the thing, too. Baseball and football, even the workouts are different. They just are and so it's your body at some point kind of wears down. I think that happens some with Brad, and I think now that he's fully committed to college baseball, I think you're going to see him take a jump this year. Uh, center field I think is rather interesting. You know, we Jess Davis transfers in from UAB. We're excited about him, former Golden Glove guy. He's a guy that can absolutely run everything down. Great defender. Hitting has been a bit of a question mark. You know, we'll see how he looks uh, here in the early uh, – Early stay. We'll see how things go. Uh, need him to make a big jump. You know, he needs to come run offensively. And then there's Braywin Skinner. You know, Bray was hurt, you know, last year. It took him a while to kind of get up to speed. Then, of course, he announced his presence at LSU. Nearly hit one out of the stadium. Incredible. Near the top of the Diamond Decks there in right field at Alex Box Stadium. It was a majestic blast. And we were thinking they were going to bunt him. You know, we had a runner at second. We're thinking we're going to bun him over because we were in the middle of a pitcher's duel and then Bray hits a shot. The, the thing about it is Bray just hadn't been very consistent with the bat. Again, an elite defender, a guy with elite speed, the bat hadn't been there. And so that's the thing you think about. Okay, we've got two guys that are basically speed guys that can defend gap to gap, guys that are good with the glove, kind of a challenge offensively. You know, I, I'll be honest with you. I wouldn't be surprised if we didn't give Cameron James an opportunity to play out there. And I'll kind of get to that a little bit later. You know, I I begin to think about, you know what, we could have nine spots in this batting order that could hurt you. Or we're going to trade defense for offense in center field. And so if we really want to have nine big bats, I don't know that I wouldn't move Cam out there. I mean, he's got the range. He's got the speed. He's athletic enough. And, again, that's not – any inside information, that's just kind of me talking off the top of my head. But you're going to have some dudes out in that outfield. Right field, Kellum Clark, you know, we, we put him out in outfield some last year, and it was all new to him. You know, he's played some at third base and first base. I, I just don't think first base is his spot. But put him in right field. You know, Tanner Allen wasn't a natural outfielder either. You know, Tanner Allen's just a natural athlete. We put him out there, and I think Kellum is a guy that um, can get it done. He and actually has a pretty big arm. That's one of the things that people don't understand. He's a former pitcher. Kellum's a big, strapping young man. And I, I – listen, if Kellum Clark hit 20 home runs this year, I would not be the least bit surprised. Of course, he's got to do a better job recognizing spin. And I expect him to make a big jump this year offensively. You know, last year, remember, how he was hurt during most of the non-conference and uh, didn't know if he was going to get back. And then the next thing you know, he gets healthy and absolutely hit some tanks for us in the postseason. You know I'm excited about his future, not to mention now that he's healthy again he's able to put some masks on and and uh, a lot of those balls last year that were going off to wall are gonna go over it this year. I like the look of this outfield. I just worry a little bit about offensive production at center field no matter if you go with Davis or Skinner that's why I think maybe you experiment a little bit maybe you put cam James out there just to see just to see because all of a sudden that gives you another bat in the order um so so. I think Cam is your third baseman right now. But what about Swate Alford? You know, he's a guy, too, that's been great defensively in the fall by all accounts. He's a guy that can really swing the bat. Now he is a freshman. And you guys know we've had a lot of highly heralded freshmen come in here and struggled in year one because they've never seen breaking balls like this. I don't care how much travel team baseball you played. I don't care how much money your parents, you know, paid for you to travel and be on the elite teams. You have not seen a breaking ball. In the, on the high school level or the travel team level like you're going to see in college baseball. You haven't. And that's not – I mean, e- even the guys from the G5 schools, like you're going to go see some sophomore and junior you know, pitcher from Wofford or, or wherever. Those guys are going to be able to spot off a breaking ball better than anything that you've seen. You say, oh, well, I played against this guy in high school. Completely different dynamic. Completely different. Everybody's got an ace at this level. Everybody. And you got to remember a lot of those guys you play travel team baseball with, junior college guys or G five guys, you're gonna be seeing some elite guys when you get in the SEC. You're gonna see Major League Baseball prospects in the SEC. And so there is this acclamation period. You gotta figure this thing out. And so that's the thing with Slate Alford is yeah, he can hit the fastball. Can he adjust to the college breaking ball? If he can, I think it makes that move. And again, this is just a, a theory. This is not any inside information. Anyway, what's don't text me and say, Steve, I heard no, no. I'm just trying to think how do we get how do we make this offense even more potent? You know, I, as for now, I think Cam's at third. I do, but I think if we begin to have some struggles in center field offensively, I think we could maybe remember when Foskey moved from third to second, and all of a sudden the team got better. You might see something similar happen later in the year. I think maybe you run it as it is for now, but if if we struggle offensively at center field, maybe you move Cam, and if Slate shows that he can handle it, maybe. Maybe that makes sense. And that's all all that I'm saying is maybe that makes sense. Uh, Forsyth stays there at short. Obviously, one of the elite defenders in the game right now. You know, need to get a little bit better offensively. But again, it's just about getting bigger and stronger, getting reps. Like we just talked about. He saw pitches last year he'd never seen in his life. But you remember, he ended up making the the College World Series uh, team, it was the all CWS team. Uh, Had a really, really, really good game, too, against Vanderbilt, too. so we got a couple more things, positions we could talk about here as well. RJ Yeager, we think he can be a dude. Now, he's moving to second base. It's a shorter throw for him. You know, and you look at some of the shortstop numbers too, he's had some some big net some big numbers. He's also had some games where he's had some big errors. And so moving that transition from short to second, the most difficult part of it, is not burning your first baseman up. You're so used to having to make the longer throw you still got to make a strong and accurate throw, but it's not like it is at short. You don't have to wind up quite as much. you got to make more of a controlled throw over there. But offensively, we think he's going to be a double-digit home run guy. And I think this is a lineup that can be very, very potent, to say the least. I think he can be a big part of it, too. And then, of course, you got Luke Hancock over there at first. You know, and it took him some time to kind of figure all of it out over there, but he did. And I think now you see that position as a strength. You know, we really thought last year that Josh was going to hold that thing down and kind of pick up where he left off in 2020. Didn't work out. Wish Josh the best. But, you know, I think you feel pretty good about Luke over there now. Luke's able to dig things out. He's comfortable. And, and then when he's comfortable, then his defenders around him are comfortable. And then, hey, I don't have to be quite as perfect throwing to him. Now, he doesn't have that big wingspan like some other guys have had, but he is a guy that can dig balls out of the dirt. And then, of course, uh, you've got a future first-rounder behind the plate and Logan Tanner. I don't, and I don't think there's any question there. I think you, you probably maybe work Luke in at times – uh, during the midweek and let him get some catching time because I think he projects as a catcher. I don't know that you want to abandon that. But the reality of it is, is you know, we're going to return a very good – we actually might be better offensively. The question is going to be is who, who, who has the clutch gene? You know, I always seem like T.A. would come up in those big situations and always come through. And I remember when I was writing Dogpile, I only found a couple situations where he came up in the ninth and didn't get a hit or didn't get on base. Very rarely did that happen. So who is going to be that guy? Logan Tanner's got a little bit of that in him. Cam at times has shown some of that too, but who's going to be the guy when the game is on the line that gets a big hit late? There's no Rowdy, there's no T.A., but you know, people forget we lost Foskey and Westberg. Just imagine if we'd had Fosky and Westberg on this team last year, what this team would have been like offensively, right? And you think, well, we won the World Series, yeah, in three games. Might have won it two, you know. Might have won the SEC Championship last year. Might have been the number one team. Could have been that simple. And that's the thing, too, when all the pieces kind of come together and you look at this team, you know, I think offensively you could be better. Does that mean we're going to be as good in late-game situations? That remains to be seen. And my biggest concerns are about pitching, and we're going to talk about that on Monday excuse me, Friday, and so uh, let's get out of here, and you guys enjoy the rest of your day. Be sure to watch the Bulldogs tonight as they host Georgia. If you're coming to the Humphrey Coliseum, remember to bring your mask, and please don't give those employees a hard time. It's not their decisions, okay? You don't have to defend your position and talk about the science and talk about stuff you read on Facebook. They're just there to do a job, so please be courteous to those folks. Please, please, please. Uh, no, There's nobody there, the concession stand people, nobody up there had any any say in this decision, so please, don't take out your frustration on them. And, of course, if you don't want to wear, wear a mask, just stay home and watch on TV. Uh, we need your support no matter where you're bringing it from. Until next time, let's all live our lives in a way we make more friends than enemies and people can see a difference in the way we live. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines.